And I really do believe comic books, in the most unbiased sense, is one of the greatest content mediums in this world because it's the only medium where you and I, all three of us, can read a comic book and have different interpretation and find new things from it because these are panels of art and it still uses our imagination to connect the dots. And so what we read and what we see is personalized to our own journey. And I think that's why the comic book medium is so powerful. So I do feel like this is step one. But yeah, I think let's imagine a way, but I think it could be anything. But like with all storytelling, you need a foundation. And I believe 24-7 will serve as that IP foundation going forward. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang. And as always, I have my co-host, Lee Chang, with me. Hey, Will. Excited to be on today. Today, we have Carl Choi. Carl is the project lead for 24-7 Comics, a studio that utilizes Web3 to fix the broken comic business model. In February 2021, during the wave of Asian hate crimes that swept across America, Carl helped launch Hashtag Stand with Asians, where he collaborated with NFT artists like Shibuya's People Pleaser and Azuki Steamboy 33 to raise over $750,000. This initiated Carl's involvement with the Azuki NFT community and his deep dive into Web3. Welcome, Carl. Hey, thanks, Will. Thanks, Lee. So when I was graduating college in 2007, Asian American representation in media was not where it is today. You were a bit of a hero to me when I was graduating college. You, our friends, Jeff Chow, Ben Tran, along with our previous guest, Tom No, pretty much ran the Asian American nightclub scene in Los Angeles at that time. You also represented really the only Asian American artists that were able to break out to the mainstream, Far East Movement and Jin. Can you bring us back to that moment in time and tell us what it was like for Asian Americans? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. It means a lot. It was definitely a season of my life where I was just pursuing my passions. I was kind of coming out of my professional career, didn't really want to lead the corporate life and fell into this party promotion scene. And it just happens that we promoted for Asian American communities and we saw these parties grow because I felt like there's two things that I think are really important in the Asian culture. One is shopping by day and then nightlife by night. So it's almost like our national pastime to go clubbing. <laughs> and stopping, right? And so we just got lucky. We were very early in promoting Asian parties and we saw people gather, people received it very well and other cities wanted to do similar things. And so we just went for it. But to be honest with you, I think we're very lucky. I think we were passionate about the Asian culture. We're passionate about kind of promoting the Asian culture and the community and what it brings to the table. And since then, it's you know, evolved into a marketing agency. So it's been really interesting just seeing what happened then and what it evolved to then. So you started out with a like a club promotion company and it eventually evolved into like an Asian American representation like media music group, right? Sure. How did that happen? Cuz today, right, K-pop is really famous. There's Asian American actors on Netflix and all these different platforms, right? Let's set the stage 20 years ago. What was that like? 15 years ago, what was that like? Sure. I'll talk about the nightlife first. Uh, in Hollywood, we're the second biggest earner, not the first earner when it comes to the volume and numbers. But what was funny was I always recall the sit down with a nightclub owner. And he, at the time, was filling out the census. I remember him showing me the census he was filling out. And he had white, Latino, black, other. And so he laughed at me and looked at me and said, what are you? And I, I, I laughed and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I think there was something about that moment that forever reminded me of why I did what I did because I realized like I was kind of, I had a chip on my shoulder and I wanted to show these volumes. And so we introduced bottle service. We got the nightclubs popping. And at one point, I remember a few years later, he showed me the census over a drink and he said, look, there's Asian now. 
And so I thought <laughs> that was a really big accomplishment, number one. Two was because we had numbers now, record labels, brands, companies would come to us for promotions. And so we basically spun off a marketing agency that represented Asian Americans and the demographics. And so we started incorporating brands and we became, became a marketing company. And one of the things that was really important to us was showcasing talent. And so there's like the obvious, you know, I think Black Eyed Peas toured with us. We had even Bruno Mars show up at a club one time, but there wasn't anyone that was like truly like Asian Asian. And so when I saw Jin on 106 in Park, I was like, who is this guy? I still remember like having his video download on my AOL and seeing it show up on my computer. And I was like, man, I kept watching it over and over again. I couldn't believe it. Literally, I think I watched it like a hundred times that night at like four in the morning. And next thing you know, I saw a flyer that someone else was promoting him at a nightclub in Koreatown and I went to go watch him. And a little embarrassed that I wasn't able to book him first in our nightclubs, I left early. And on my way out, I was with Jeff Chow and I realized I lost my phone and it was a brand new razor at the time. Jeff kept calling, kept calling and finally someone picks up and the guy's like, hey, I'm in front of the club. Why you guys just come meet me? I drove up to the club and we rolled down a window. I wasn't very happy. So I says, who the F has my phone? And the crowd split and it was Jin turning around <laughs> and they wow. need a phone. No way. So that a, yeah, that was a moment of where we met and that changed my life forever. Probably changed both our lives forever. But I think with Jin and any talent, I think one, I just saw the potential and wanted everyone else to see it. So I basically put my money where my mouth was and made sure that they were booked at all our clubs. Then we started pitching them to other nightclubs. And then, you know, no and behold, a lot of clubs in Asia were also interested and saw his accomplishment as the big advance for Asian American, Asian global community. And so we embraced that and four passports, nine years later, you know, we uh, came back to the States and it was quite a run. But yeah, it's fun because today we still are all very close friends. And, you know, I think things like that, just it's a once in a lifetime thing. So what did it end up evolving into after the club promotion company and the music production company or the music talent agency, you created a great company. What is that about? Yeah. So there was a very clear moment in time when I had to make a choice because Jim was doing really well in Asia. The Far East guys were doing really well here. I chose Asia. We set up an office in Hong Kong and we had a run there and it was really good. But at the end of the day, we missed our family. And so Jin had, a, had his baby, Chance, and then basically wanted to come back. And then we came back and tried to take a big swing. And so we launched a great company. And what that was, was in the presence of great company. And in essence, I really tried to take this K-pop Asian model and we signed a number of acts. Tom Noah was part of that. And we tried to market as a team. Fail. I almost went bankrupt at that time. So we had to quickly pivot. I met my wife in 2014 and she was like, I believe in you. Like, I think there's a business here. And at the time I had a 7,000 square foot office and it was supposed to be this talent development center in a studio. And I just wanted to really invest in the artist. So I, I made it very comfortable as a space for performance, recording, everything else. And uh, it became a venue. So we started renting it out at first. And then we realized Kill needed producing help. And then one thing led to another. I ended up meeting a Hollywood producer by chance, he took me under his wing, allowed me to produce events for him. Then through that, I started producing events for a lot of the movie studios. And then in parallel, I always say I went to school with him as my professor and I learned to produce at the same time. So it was fun. It was kind of like a full circle where I got to produce these large scale events again for Marvel Studios, for Fox, for Dungeons and Dragons. And it was super fun. And that was a very relevant was because a lot of these events took place at Comic Cons. And I found myself having a lot of nostalgia because comics was like the foundation of my life. I mean, I came from Hong Kong when I was eight years old. I had no friends, total loner, and I really couldn't communicate with anyone. I found out later in life that I'm dyslexic and I couldn't find myself to ever finish a novel. But comics spoke to me. So I learned English 
reading comics. I fantasized and dreamt comics. And that was my whole like adolescence. But uh, I think what happened was I would, uh, you know, our, our business started doing pretty well. So I would set up the production outside of the Comic-Con and then I would disappear for the rest of the day, hang out at Artist Alley, hang out with all the artists, hang out with the writers, and just start becoming this fanboy again. In 2016, we did a large-scale event for Marvel Studios. And then since then is when I dove deep back into the comic book space. So tell us a little bit about what diving deep into the comic book space means. So it's changed a lot. I mean, you look at the 90s, and that's kind of where I grew up. Jim Lee's X-Men number one sold like 9 million copies. So I was always curious, like, what the heck happened to all that money, right? And so, because a lot of the content today is just as good, but no one is reading them now. And I think a lot of it has to do with them now being on the movie screens. But when I say deep dive, it was more about just understanding, like, what's out there. Like, I want to get back into it. And I think there was a season during the 90s where the artists were king. I mean, like some of these artists were in Levi's commercials. While when the 2000s came around and when movies were being made, the writers became king. And so for me, I was always kind of curious in what happened with that dynamic. And yeah, I learned a lot. And I learned a lot about just how the system worked. And so I was always kind of curious and wanted to be investigative as to like why that happened. So like one of the things that you've done recently in terms of production not event production, but TV and film production was the Rift War Cycle, right? Was that part of the discovery in terms of this deep dive in terms of comic books and fantasy world? No, it wasn't. I'll go back to the deep dive question. So deep okay. dive to me was just being a fanboy, to be honest. Got I was it. really just getting to know everyone. I was an adult now. Comic book creators are real people instead of like me just being a fan. And so I really just got to relate with them and connect with them because I had this journey of artist management and I kind of understood the struggles that artists had. And was really trying to understand their struggles. And a lot of times as friends, I would just help them if I could, right? Uh, but then when it came to this producing side, so fast forward to 2020 on how this whole Rift War saga came together. Events were not popular anymore. <laughs> and so at one point, I thought I had this trajectory for the rest of my life to produce the global immersive company, the most immersive entertainment company. And 2020 came around, pandemic hit. And it was really funny because it was around the same time I ran to Jeff and he himself was also exploring what he wanted to do next because he had just exited a tech company. And so for me, I was kind of in this place where, all right, I know this event stuff is going away. And for him, he's kind of starting a new life. And we ended up just meeting and just having a chat. And it was just really like a catch up. I've known this guy for like 10 plus years, but we never really sat down. And so we realized one thing, we both love comic books. And so we ended up talking for like four hours. And I think one of the missions was, why don't we still make some comic books? into film and TV. And so we actually went out and tried to look for IP. And so I went and talked to different studios. I talked to different Congo companies. And one thing I realized was everything was taken. Literally all the studios had locked everything down. And so I was really frustrated. Him and I were kind of like, man, what do we do? I called a friend of mine at the time who was a creative development executive at a large studio. And he was also a big comic geek. And him and I used to always chit chat on that. And I was like, hey, man, like, I'm trying to find a book. How do I get ahead of the studios? And he said, Carl, you can't. And I was like, what? And he's like, have you ever thought about actually just making your own? I was like, actually, no. And he's like, Carl, you already know all these artists and writers. You like go to Comic Con with them and you break bread with them. Just ask them. Ask them if they have a, a story to tell. And so I did. And the first person to buy it was Justin Jordan. And he gave Jeff and I some pitches and we talked through it and we we're like, oh, this is interesting. And so we ended up greenlighting our first comic and with no intention to start a comic company. In fact, in talking to Justin Jordan, we learned a few things. There was only two worlds where comic book creators can go. 
So one is the Marvel and DCs of the world. So they're kind of like the big two. You're told what to write. You're told what to draw. Your name gets out there though, because you're attached to big names at, at the big IP. But the schedule is really crazy. What you're being paid is like barely above minimum wage. And it's a struggle. And not all artists can and, and creators can do that. The second side was Image Comics. And that's the one that like all creators kind of spy to be part of. And the dream is, oh, I own everything. And Image just takes a fee and they market for us. And yeah, that's where I want to be, right? But I think the stories that we learned from Justin that most people don't talk about is how about those books, like 99 out of 100, that creators would spend a year or two making to deliver the image and they don't sell. And so we were kind of scratching our heads and we were like, wow, there must be something there. And then second thing was we learned that the comic book distribution system was completely broken because they say there's 2,500 comic book shops in the U.S., but what we learned from some of the comic book executives was only about 800 comic book shops order comics every month. So we were like, wow, this comic industry is really small. And then last but not least, I think for us, we also realized that there was a disconnect between the new digital age and what we loved growing up, this kind of physical comic industry, right? And I think what that was, was the comic industry, you buy a comic, you read it, you love the story. Then all of a sudden, if Wolverine hits the big screen, Will calls me and wants to pay me 200 bucks for my Wolverine number one. There's something really cool about that, right? And as digital comics, it made comics accessible for readership, but you didn't have that. Like, I'll never get the call from Will. So I, I think there was something there amongst those three issues that kind of sparked what we're doing today. Yeah, so before we get into the Web3 aspect, I actually wanted to get into your Web3 journey. And I believe your Web3 journey really started out with I Stand With Asians, right? Could you talk a little bit about that experience? Like what was going on at the time? What happened and how did you end up collaborating with all these NFT artists? Yeah, you know, actually my Web3 journey started just a tad before that. So it actually started when a friend of mine, Leo, who's actually part of uh, our company now, he uh, wanted to do an NFT drop August of 2020. I brought Sean Chen on board to do it. And Sean was very happy to explore. He created a bunch of pieces. And the week leading up to the drop, I caught COVID. And so I disappeared for a month and totally missed the whole thing. And the drop did not go as well because I didn't wasn't there to coordinate uh, marketing. Now, then what happened was six months later, as we know, it was really tough time for the Asian community. And it really broke my heart when we saw a lot of folks being attacked on the streets for no reason. And especially one incident was uh, one of our mutual friends, Tian, he had written this blog about how his buddy was the one that got stabbed in New York uh, and back for no reason. And so it was really inspiring. And I reached out and we're like, hey, how can we help? And, you know, one of the things that he wanted to do was establish a day where we actually come together and program a full day, recognizing that as small as a community as we are, the Asian community really need allies everywhere else. And so we decided to jump in and produce this program on March 26, uh, 2021. And uh, one of the programming elements, which was really funny because it was literally like Jeff and Leo calling me after that lunch with an artist and said, hey, we just met with this artist for lunch and she wants to do an NFT drop and donate everything to a charity. So aren't you doing that thing on March 26? And I was like, yeah, that's the day she's dropping it. I'm like, oh, that's weird. And so I got on the phone with her and then uh, we aligned really quickly and said, all right, done. And that was actually People Pleaser. And so we did that drop and I think it did like 600K or something like that. And then we were completely blown away. I think all of us were blown away. 
And yeah, super excited. And that's kind of how it started. And then after that, we went out to get applications from uh, underserved Asian American organizations because we felt like there was a lot happening on the media, but we actually want to be a little bit more practical in what we actually deployed that financing in. And so we look for folks that didn't have money for PR. We look for folks that are actually already doing good work and had them apply and then in turn support them. And so we're able to identify 24 organizations and deploy that, those dollars to them to help fulfill their cause. After working with People Pleaser, what was very interesting was we had a combination of artists reaching out and we had some casual encounters. For instance, James Jane, we were literally just catching him on the phone and he was sharing with me about his upcoming NFT drop. And then on my end, I was sharing with him about how fulfilling it's been with Stand With Asians. And he was like, oh, actually, I was looking for a charity to donate to. And so he decided to donate. Then there was another instance, Steam Boy, aka Arnold, who reached out and said he had an NFT that he wanted to drop and donate to Stand With Asians. And so we did that drop. And then later on, we even partnered with Bernard Chang and the NFL to do another drop to finance Stand With Asians. So it's become a thing. It's been really fun. And in a way, I always say before the pandemic, I was a very devout churchgoer. And now that's kind of become my church. Yeah. So, I mean, for the audience that doesn't know, I mean, we talk about people pleaser a lot across like our episodes that people pleaser is like one of the most famous NFT artists. She has now a new project, Web3 project called Shibuya, which is like kind of the Netflix of Web3. But I wanted to talk about Arnold or Steampunk, right? I think this connection that you built with Arnold was kind of what got you to give you the aha moment when it comes to Web3 communities, right? And so can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Azuki? Yeah, I was. So I am currently one of the co-founders, but then one of the co-hosts of Red Bean Soup. It's a weekly talk show that happens on Twitter Spaces. And it's been the longest running. I think we're on the 33 or 34th episode now. And we started it on the week of Azuki's first mint. And so it almost serves as a bit of a time capsule as to how long Azuki's been around. But some background to that was Arnold and I obviously became friends after this whole Stan Vasions drop. And, you know, I would invite him to some of these conversations or some of the charities that we donated to, some of these nonprofits that want to report on things. And then we would just have side conversations because Arnold was a comic book artist. In hearing his journey, I'm sure he shared before, comic books are a grind for artists. I mean, it's just literally like a writer can write five comics a week, but an artist can only draw one comic a month. And that's if they're super fast. And so obviously he went the corporate route and became this character design over at uh, Activision. But one of the things about Arnold was him and I always was super intrigued about Web3. And I still remember it was around September that he told me that he was talking to a project or he was signing on to one. And then around December, I think it was like Christmas Day, we were just chatting and he was like, oh yeah, we're about to launch. Are you on the whitelist? Yeah. I was like, what? I was like, what's a whitelist? Because I, I just have not gone through the minting experience. So he's like, yeah, check out my website. So we checked it out. And I was like, wow, this looks really cool. Because one thing was I belong to a lot of different chats. So a lot of my friends were already like Bored Ape, Bored Apes Maxis. I was never attracted to that project for one reason or another. But when I saw this, this thing kind of materialized for me. I was like, wow, I can imagine this being my PFP. And so uh, come January 12th, the mint day comes around. I tried to mint and I failed, obviously minted out super fast. So the next day I used my mint list. And I still remember Arnold was saying, if you got a female, would you keep it? And I was like, yeah, I think so. He said, yeah, because it's 50-50. So I'm curious. He's like, I hope you get a rare one. And so I ended up minting a female. And I was like, oh, cool. And I was super proud of it. But then I was like, man, it doesn't really connect as me. And I was trying to be like, oh, this is my daughter and stuff. And then uh, I ended up flipping it and like getting another one. And so 
since then, I've been pretty deep in Azuki and the community. I host these monthly Azuki dinner clubs in Los Angeles and obviously ha have attended the last two parties. And so, yeah, it's been a huge inspiration because Azuki's art style is very manga anime inspired. And so I think what happened then when I finally started getting deeper into the Azuki verse, it made all the sense that comic books would also exist in a similar way. And so that's kind of how 24-7 comics came around. Yeah, so I mean, one of the really cool things that you've done is because a lot of these NFT projects, if you own the NFT, then you own the IP license and you can build up the character and build brand value on top of them, right? So lots of people are trying different ways to really build brand value on their own IP. And one of the things that you've done really well is really build out the world for your characters, right? And so you've commissioned artists to build these beautiful comic book style character designs to like really flesh out what your Azukis mean. Could you just maybe tell us a little bit about your Azuki? Yeah, so my Azukis, you'll see if you like go through my Twitter, there's a ton of commissions because in a way, it always really clicked for me when they say that you own the commercial rights for the IP. But one thing I've noticed just through observation, I realized the IP business is a foreign language to most people. But because I've been through music, I've been through film and TV, I understand the value of IP and what it means to invest in it. And so very early on, since day one, I invested heavily into two characters. One is M and the other one is C. And basically these two characters had some sort of adventure. I don't know what it was, but I always imagine, and one of my favorite movies of all time is Bonnie and Clyde. And so I always felt like it would be a story of sorts. And so I invested visually in a lot of artists commissioning them to turn these Azukis into commission. And that was kind of like my early Twitter when I kind of got back into it and sharing these. I think a lot of folks also did similar things. And I thought it was really fun seeing it come together. But I think one of the things that for me is because at the end of the day, we've been already spending two years in creating comic books. And so I already think a certain way when it comes to characters and IP. So it only made sense that our PFP characters one day actually appear in stories, rather as anime, film, TV, and I think the easiest route would be comic books. And that's kind of why I decided to put a lot of time into making sure that we fleshed out these two characters and actually had professional Hollywood character designers go through and like flesh out their full body characters and what they're going to look like. And so it's been really fun. I think doing that, I'm seeing all kinds of commission in the Azuki community today. And I think it's probably one of the biggest communities when it comes to commissioning artists that turn their PFPs into actual characters. Yeah, I mean, there's even like cross-world commission characters, right? I know you have like, there's a different project called EverEye, which is kind of like a Gundam style. And you basically have put these Gundams in this one project with your characters in Azuki and you commission this comic book art with both of them, right? I think it's super fascinating. But yeah, so basically understanding that through Azuki, understanding this community and understanding kind of the incentives with IP. Tell us about how, where you got to the aha moment for your own 24-7 comics. Sure. The aha moment for 24-7 comics was just realizing that the blockchain will help solve a lot of these issues I shared about earlier. Number one, artists in the comic book space are not always rewarded for what they create. So, for example, I think in the big twos, I think they get a bonus if they create a character and it shows up in the movie. Now, that's not royalties. I mean, if you're co-creating something, it typically it should be royalties, but I think for the most part, work for hire on the blockchain. The artists are clearly allocated a part of the revenue going forward. I think that's really beautiful. Number two is what I talked about earlier on waiting for that call from Will to buy my Wolverine for $200. That can happen now. So if this comic was limited and it exists on the blockchain, there's only going to be that many minted. And so 
I think that's going to be huge. And then three is distribution. I think for us, we did a little experiment last month doing a free mint kind of alongside the free mint meta. And we had over 12,000 people come and visit our reader. And so that in itself is insane because you have to go to like a Comic-Con and pass out ash cans to 200,000 people to realistically probably get 5,000 people to read your ash can, right? And so for us to see that, I think it was really a beautiful set of data for us to work with. And so I think those validated a lot of what we feel like it's going to be the future when it comes to the new meta for comic books. So maybe you can help us understand how the studio really works. Mm. Like, what does a free reader mean when you do a free mint? Like, how do you help the creators? How does a comic book come out of this project? Can you just explain kind of how it all works? Sure. I'll kind of dive into our business model because, like I said, we basically started with Justin Jordan and he literally created this business model with us. And first, we established this thing called partnership publishing. And so while you know, I explained the two models earlier, the Marvel DZ versus creator-owned image, there are risks on one end more than the other. And so we said, okay, well, we took on the risk. So we paid matching rates to Marvel and DC, but then the creators actually participate for the life of the IP. So we basically carved out a third of all the profits going forward to go back to all the creators' teams. Number two, we already have comics ready to go. And so I think I just didn't understand how a lot of NFT projects would, you know, kind of promise and sell the vision, which is great. It's like a total Kickstarter thing. I'm just a little bit more practical. And so I think we just got lucky where we're able to already have like nine comic books ready to go. And so we can now plan around that. And then three, I think Web3 allows us to extend the decentralization of ownership to our community, meaning our PFP collection will not just be a PFP. It'll be an avatar. It'll be a character that you could own. And then on top of that, as you read our comics, you will be able to interact with our creators to pitch your characters to be in future issues. And so what we really want people to have an opportunity to is not just read about Wolverine and the X-Men, but eventually have the character you own be in a future issue of X-Men. So that's, that's the way we're thinking about things. So let's start out with the comic books that are coming out. Could you just kind of tell us what the stories are um, so that we can get, at least kind of get a tangible idea of what the comic books are? Sure. I won't tell you much about the comic books, but I'll tell you about some of the creators. Yeah, please. Yeah. So Justin Jordan, he came out of the scene in Image Comics through Luther Strode. And Luther Strode was a collaboration with Trad Moore, who is probably one of the most notable artists today in, in modern comic art. And Justin has since gone on to write from Valiant, from Marvel, DC, pretty much been around the block. He's also writes for Call of Duty. His partner on Zero Ghost is Brian Ching. He's been an artist on Star Wars for the last 10 years. And Brian was a little burned out. And it was funny because when I hit him up, he was a little hesitant about getting into anything. But once he got to read the scripts for Zero Ghost, he was just so energized and he's been pumping out some of the best work ever. We also have Kreese. Kreese is actually working on a pretty big project with Marvel right now. I'm not sure if I can share, but it's around uh, a lot of Asian superheroes and he's going to be redesigning a lot of the characters that's to come. Jarrell Threat, another artist that's really big in the world, Magic the Gathering. So he's doing this fully painted book where every page is painted on physical 18 by 24 paper. Vince Nico, he's a very well-known con artist. I don't know if he has a familiar with con artists, but con artists are artists that actually travel from con to con. And they're almost like gypsies. They travel in like groups of like 20 and they set up these booths and they do prints, they do a commission and they do really well as a community. And Vince was someone that really stood out because he was referred to me by another fellow comic art collector. And I got a commission with Vince. He turned around super fast and it was beautiful. And so 
one thing he always talked about was this vision of this book he wanted to create. And so we brought him on. Warwick Johnson Cadwell, he's known for working with Mike Mignola for the last four or five years. We have like a huge roster of writers and artists that basically, in a way, giving us a shot and, and really taking a chance with us. And so we really appreciate that. And some of the titles, I can't share much, but we've definitely moved away from the superhero meta. And this first title that we are going to be dropping is called Genesis. And it's really funny because a lot of uh, first drops are called Genesis collections, but it just happened. This comic book was called Genesis and it was based on a sketch that Sean Chen did 20 years ago. Sean had a story that he told that one day he was at a Comic-Con and someone came and started flipping through his portfolio and he saw this exact visual. And the guy says, hey, what's the story here? And Sean said, there is no story. And the guy's like, oh, okay. And he walked off. Then a guy, one of his fellow artists came in and was like, dude, did you know who that guy was? And it turned out it was a Hollywood producer. And Sean was like, damn it, I missed out. <laughs> so years later, which was a few years ago, he posted on Instagram and I literally called him. I said, what is that? And he's like, oh yeah, you know, it's this story. And he basically pitched a story and I was like, oh, this is awesome. Let's do something of it. So we bought into Genesis and it's a beautiful world because it follows this character, this world famous neurologist. His name is Lucas Zhang. And he actually believes that human evolution has come to an end. A lot of it has to do with him inventing a process to transition human consciousness into androids. And so it's such a far-reaching goal that the only two worlds he was able to get funding from was the American military and the American amusement park industry. And so when these two worlds collide, it's basically what creates this world. And as you can imagine, as I paint the backdrop of what the story's about, there's a lot of characters that can pop up in both these worlds. And so we're going to be releasing a PFP collection based on this book to allow our community to be part of the story. Yeah, so that's actually a perfect segue in terms of like really understanding what the Web3 components are, right? So you talk about a free mint with the comic book reader, which now you talk about the PFP collection. Can you just help us really understand what the community can actually own? Uh, how does that process work? Yeah, so what happened was Genesis had to get postponed because it was a bear market. And so we just said, all right, this is not a good time to launch a 10,000 PFP collection. And at the time, the free mint meta was a thing. So we said, okay, what if we did a free mint and just allow the community to own a key into this reader that we're developing? And so we decided to fragmentize one of the key characters, which is Bobo, the gorilla, which is uh, kind of the vintage version of it. And so we fragmentize it into 5,000 Bobos, and they have different colors and different rarities. But the idea is now the community gets to own a fraction of this character. And what we wanted to do was two-prong. One, allow them to actually hold a key to read a preview of Genesis. And then number two, we want this community to journey with us as to what it looks like to manage, promote, and monetize on a character IP. And to us, this is our Steamboat Willie. And we want the community holders to be part of that journey. And so we have a big vision for each of the characters. I mean, you look at, you go to Disneyland and I think there is like a whole store just based on Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And so that's a vision for ours that we want to bring to each of our characters. Now, what do you own when it comes to the Genesis collection? I mentioned one, you get to unlock the reader itself, but our reader itself is not just a reader. Our vision is really to take this to become a marketplace. I know a lot of artists now work digitally while I myself love physical comic art. I do feel like there's a market for digital art because a lot of these artists work really hard to create these masterpieces that come alive on these pages. And so we want to be able to create a marketplace for original one-of-one comic art as well. And so that's also going to be part of our ecosystem. 
But overall, I think for us, we want to be able to be a platform that allows IP like Genesis, IP like Zero Ghost to nurture their fans on. So if you're a fan of Zero Ghost, you could be on the 24-7 comics platform and be able to interact with other comic fans or be introduced to other titles like Genesis. And our idea is really to create a community in Web3 to really help build and support this next generation of creators. You talk about casting. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? A lot of folks have done casting. So one, in the Zuki community, there's been this thing called uh, Love Island. And I didn't participate too much, but a lot of it has to do with like you pitching a Zuki to be part of this reality show competition. So Shibuya did a separate casting where you get to submit your Azuki to be casted in the second episode. So for us, it's going to be a little different. I think for us, what we actually want to do is run through this casting process, almost like a professional Hollywood casting. Now, your PFP is you as an entity, right? Is you as an IP and what you represent. You, you're casting for a role in this particular comic book. So our goal is to, at the end of each issue, have a list of roles that we're trying to fill. And then you as a PFP holder can actually pitch your character to be part of this issue two story. You don't know where these characters are going to be, but what you're going to get is a breakdown of what these characters are. Kind of like if you were casting for like a Hollywood role. And then you have to kind of fill in your background. You have to fill in why you, you have to pitch yourself. And then we're going to put most of the power to creators because at the end of the day, they are the storytellers, but we will play with other ways of building that would get people excited about themselves being on these future issues as well. So that's our goal to really create value, not just for our creators as a community, but also for our community holders and uh, potentially other NFT projects as well. I can imagine if we just kind of think about it from the Marvel DC, because that's what most of us know, right? So what you're doing is you're kind of giving us a chance to own one of these characters. And if they end up being inside a comic book or a story, and it eventually they become like a very famous story or like basically become part of like a big franchise, then you actually own that character, right? And so you actually own this the rights to the celebrity pretty much. Is that kind of the, the understanding of it? Correct. I mean, I always talk about like the movie studio world. A lot of folks who work outside of it, you always think, oh, wow, this box office is so awesome. They did a billion this weekend. But to be honest, that's chump change. Movie studios is all about the franchise. So to them, that movie, that Avengers movie that you just saw was just a trailer to all the toys that they're about to sell across globally. And so our goal is to break down those walls of Hollywood and allow entrepreneurs within the Web3 space to participate in learning how to manage IP and own IP and monetize on it. And I think it's a beautiful thing because I don't know if this could happen without Web3. So doing a lot of the collaborations that you mentioned with casting and being a platform and looking to allow for different types of cross-pollination, how do you guys think about partnerships and building that into the platform itself? Sure. Essentially, yeah, we are a platform, just like you said, and we are IP agnostic. So even though we're going to have our originals, if you go to our reader and look next to the originals, there's a crossover section. And it's been there forever, but I don't know if anyone knows it, but you will notice it when we start announcing some of these collaborations. And our goal is to allow not just our own NFT and IP to have value. We want to create value for these other communities because they're all IP owners as well. And so in a way, I think we've had a few communities that we've been very close to be very open and supportive of us uh, doing this. And so we've already invested in a few comics based on some of these other IPs. For us, obviously, I think for us, it makes the most sense to start with some of the blue chip communities because we know that they're serious about Web3. Our goal eventually is to be the go-to platform for comic books and to see your favorite characters 
from your favorite PFP collection or from one of ours. So actually, I'm curious, Carl, going back to your love for comic books, like what did you grow up reading? Like what were some of your favorites that you remember from your childhood? Yeah, no, the, the earliest would be the obvious Wolverines of the world, the X-Men. I think X-Men was always really cool. I don't know if you guys kind of really dove into those stories, but like it's about the yeah. mutant, right? They were like the minority and they were persecuted and they're always being hunted. And it's about them sticking together and choosing to do the right thing over and over again. There's a lot of parallels with the Asian community in a weird way. And so I think I always related to that. But I think the books that really spoke to me and, and I think forever sealed my love for comics was the Valiant Universe. And so Jim Shooter, who was an editor-in-chief mastermind of Marvel Comics in the 90s, had a falling out and then left to start Valiant Comics, which was really funny because comics were so hot. It was almost like the tech startups of that time. So he raised like a ton of money and, you know, eventually sold to a claim, but he created this like universe. And from what I understood, talking to some of the past Valiant artists and writers and Sean, who, you know, had like a almost a million copies sold for his first book on the Valiant, Jim Shooter was always very intentional in creating archetypes that people could relate to. So anywhere from Exo Man of War, he was basically Conan the Barbarian in that Iron Man armor in a fish out of water story, right? You have like Rai, who was also like then Bloodshot, right? He has certain archetypes. So like everyone had this archetype and he was very intentional in making this like interconnected universe. I think even more so than Marvel. And in fact, I think Marvel Studios borrowed a lot of stuff from the Valiant universe. And it was always very grounded heroes. It wasn't where like they got superpower in, in some weird and quirky way. It was like through some scientific experiment or got captured by aliens. Like there was always like a sci-fi element to it. So mm -hmm. I always loved Valiant because it was believable. I actually like believed that universe exists. And so, yeah, those are some of the things I read. But I still read a lot today. If you'd like any recommendations. No, I'm curious because, I mean, I grew up on comic books too. And to your point, a lot of the themes are actually very adult. Or like you go back as you get older and you're like, wow, there's actually a lot of dark stuff in there. Yes. That parallel. To your point about the Asian community, by the way, going back to Stand With Asians, I actually really appreciate you know, what you did there because I actually did participate and went to a lot of the events out in the Bay Area. So I think cool. that's a great cause with what you guys did there. So a lot of props there. So I'm curious because you moved here from Hong Kong when you were eight and I grew up partially in Taiwan. So there's a lot of wuxia, Asian comics, like even anime. I'm curious like, if there are any of those that you really grew up a big fan of. And also now being a part of Azuki, what are some of those elements perhaps that you're seeing or that you're thinking about through 247 that you want to kind of bring into the fold as well? Sure. That's actually a really good question because a vision for 247 is we actually want to merge the world of manga, manhwa, and American comic books. I feel like the Web3 audience is small, but we're global. And so I feel like we need to make sure we cater to that. And I think the consumption behavior has changed. Look at Netflix. Like when you scroll down Netflix from Money Heist to, you know, uh, to Squid, Squid Game, Game, I mean, it's everywhere, you know? So it's so international. So I don't understand why comics is not that yet, right? And in fact, we think comics are fucking cool. Everyone should be reading comics. And there was a time when people thought Netflix was being silly, but I really believe that people need to start reading again. I think our generation actually don't read much anymore. And for me, it's like a really easy way to get in is through comic books to start reading again. But yeah, you guys see some manga related type content as well. And when I talked about Loaf, which is by Vince Nico, he was heavily inspired by Berserk. How have you guys ever read that? But one thing you mentioned about maturity, I actually learned this term recently. It's called reading up. And so kids don't like to read stuff that's made for them because it just didn't seem as intelligent because 
they're going on Instagram watching live shootings and live car crashes when then they're being fed the stuff that's like made for kids, right? We do have a lot of content that reminds us of why comics were so special to us. And so we do have more mature content. We do have more real content. We have a lot of relationships. For some reason, there are also a lot of father and daughter, father and son, mother and son relationships within our stories. Our hope is really to have a Web3 audience that actually believes in storytelling and can invest in this as the foundation of what's to come. Because comics is just the beginning. As you mentioned, well, I mean, I just shot them. I just came back from shooting a movie for the whole month of August in Chicago. And we're developing this TV show based on the novel series Riff War. And so we're not going away. And I think for us, we see this as a vertically integrated pipeline. And so if we see a comic we love and we feel like there's an audience that would want to see it on the small screen or the big screen, we will go for it. We don't really have to wait for anybody. And so that's kind of what we're here to do. So we're super excited about 24-7 comics. And I feel like it's really early. It's really just the beginning. But I can say that for once in my life, I am working my dream job. You mentioned Sean Chen a lot of times but you didn't actually really talk about who he is. I know he's on your team and you actually actually have an all-star cast in terms of 24-7 comics. And so maybe you can kind of go through your team and where they come from and what they do just so that the audience can have an understanding of what that team looks like. Yeah, so Sean Chen, he's our art lead. When I mentioned how a lot of times artists don't get the credit they deserve, for example, Sean was really well known for his role in bringing back Iron Man. And in fact, he's credited often as the designer of the modern day Iron Man. And then AJ Vargas, he actually came from Marvel Studios. He was there as the visual development manager for five years. And so it's been great because I had a really hard time keeping the artists in line and on time. And he knows exactly how to do that. Mickey Finnegan, he's our creative director. He is responsible for some of my favorite music videos in the world. If you guys remember LMFAO. He directed most of the music videos. And currently, he actually, if you're a fan of Magic the Gathering, he directed and wrote a lot of the cinematics that are coming out on all these sets. Head of growth, Calista Wu, a fellow Azuki member, she just dove in. And I've known her for over a decade, and she just dives into everything with all her heart. And I think she came to the background as a lawyer, to the background as a pop artist. And now she's uh, our head of growth, really nurturing the community. Our product lead, Bing Kung, he's from Big Tech. He uh, had a product vision. In fact, Bing himself is also an artist. I met him during my first pandemic event in October of 2020 or 21. I don't remember. But we became really good friends because he was boothing there and I found out that he was a big tech. And so when this whole 24-7 comics vision came around, we needed someone to help execute. And he brought out a few other devs who are on cloud nine and not much to learn. Not much to learn is very Web3 native. And he saw the art and he was sold. And then our other designers, Mina, who's in charge of our website, she also came from Big Tech, as well as Chen, who leads our effort with our PFP collections. And so it's been a great journey just assembling this team. Going back to 247 as a platform, I noticed on the website, it says, you guys allude to the metaverse and you talk about that being concept in development. Can you kind of share a bit like what the vision is and how that might be something that, you know, how you guys are thinking about building that into the future of the platform and the team? When we think about the metaverse, of course, anyone can imagine anything, but you also got to think about what the audience is ready for and what the industry opportunities are for disruption. And I really do believe comic books in the most unbiased sense is one of the greatest content mediums in this world because it's the only medium where you and I, all three of us can read a comic book 
and have different interpretation and find new things from it because these are panels of art and it still uses our imagination to connect the dots. And so what we read and what we see is personalized to our own journey. And I think that's why the comic book medium is so powerful. So I do feel like this is step one. But yeah, I think let's imagine a way. But I think it could be anything. But like with all storytelling, you need a foundation. And I believe 24-7 will serve as that IP foundation going forward. So given like the almost like duopoly that, you know, Marvel and DC have, right? And, and you know, I understand that that's a current dynamic that you're trying to break. Mm. But given all the current interest and growth in the Web3 space, in digitalizing a lot of these, you know, assets and creatives, how are they thinking about Web3 and the blockchain? And perhaps what are they doing currently that you guys see that you think you can do better? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think they are making attempts, I would say, into breaking into this NFT space. Unfortunately, it's coming from a very Web2 perspective, meaning they have not been able to design products. I call these digital products, I would say, like that caters to the Web3 audience and ha had a lot of backlash. And so they also operate on more of a centralized format. And so I think DC had the like Batman cowls and they were selling them in like USD, almost like a, a shop. And then they had, I think Marvel runs exclusively through VV, but a lot of VV's content are almost like altered for NFT versus they'll take like old covers and turn them to NFTs. And I think I have friends that literally like still buys them just out of nostalgia because, oh, I could own the Silver Age comic for seven bucks. But I don't know if it's had any long-term implications as far as impacting the collector audience. But all those things are good because I believe Web3 is still really small and any opportunity for people to find a gateway into Web3 is a good thing. And so I think all these corporations, they must know something for them to invest these dollars into it, right? And so rather they do it right or wrong, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. And I think that's the opportunity, right? It's like the parallel I can think of is like Tesla, where, yeah. you know, when they first started making their electric cars, all the other big manufacturers were just like, yeah, whatever, you know, this is never going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And then by the time they try to get into it, there's all this legacy that holds them down for so long. That's so true. there's definitely like, a, you know, a huge window, I think, for 247 for what you guys are doing. Yeah, I'll tell you this. Like, we drive our IP lawyers crazy for sure. And so we are definitely doing something very different. And I think one of the strengths we have is we're able to pivot. And I think, you know, this Web3 space, they say three months is like a year. It, it's literally that. I think I've aged like 10 years since I got. <laughs> and so I kind of go you know, move at a pace where our team obviously have a good work-life balance, but also realize we're in the race right now. And so we just got to put our best foot forward and try to deliver the best product for the community. So for the audience that wants to get more involved with 24-7 and, and see what's in the pipeline, what do they do? Sure. Uh, follow us on 24-7 Comics HQ on Twitter and then 247comics.com is our website. Our reader is also available there but only accessible currently if you own a uh, Bobo. Obviously, that will change in the upcoming months as different NFTs are released through us or through our partner projects. And yeah, definitely check out the reader often because we're, we plan to have some surprises here and there. And then last but not least, definitely join our Discord. It's been such a fun Discord. Well, I don't know if you guys go in there much, but it's such a fun culture that's developed because our goal is to onboard comic fans, but it's a genuine community that loves pop culture across animation, across gaming, across traditional comics, manga. And there's just really fun chats and activities in there. So I really would love for folks to come in and say hi. And I'm in there very often. So 
if you need to find me, feel free to say hi. And then how do people find you? You can follow me on uh, Carl Choi, is my name, in pretty much all the social media platforms. All right, thank you so much for your time, Carl. Cool, thanks, fellas. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, wld.show. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you.